Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. This is brilliant. I can't wait for this one. It's ancient history today and Alina's lined up an amazing guest. Alina, who is with us? We've got with us Helen King, who is a classicist and author. Check out her blog, Mistaking Histories, or One Word, Ladies and Gentlemen. Uh, she has also written many books on medicine in the ancient period. For example, Hippocrates, now the father of medicine in the internet age. And funnily enough, she's here to talk to us about medicine in classical history. So welcome, Helen. Thank you very much. Great to be here. I love this. So we are going to zip all over the place, aren't we, with different aspects of ancient medicine? I'm going to try and answer. Hmm. Yes. Okay. <laughs> right. Let's just start with something utterly random that Alina has selected. Pliny the Elder and Corns. How does this fit into uh, your work? Okay. So I've got a bit of a thing about bad history, um, particularly people who just repeat the same old garbage, often online, without any attempt to find out where it comes from. So all over the place you will find Pliny the Elder, author of Natural History, Roman Empire, saying that a cure for corns is to look at the stars while you pour oil on a door hinge. <laughs> Just let that one sing in. <laughs> so is this people punking each other or is this genuine? You honestly wonder. That it's so, so widespread, this one. So, yeah, okay, you look at the stars... You pour oil on a door hinge and somehow your corns go. I mean, come on. So if you actually go back to Pliny on corns, there is indeed stuff on the corns in Pliny. Corns existed all over the world, like they still do. What he actually says is if you cut a corn when a star is falling, then the corn won't come back, which sort of makes sense, like the star's going whoosh, and then your corn goes whoosh, and that's the end of your corn. But then the next passage in his book, he says, if you pour vinegar over a door hinge, and then you put the gunge that you get from that on your head, it'll cure a headache. So it's actually a cure for corns, which is a bit weird, and a cure for headaches, which is also a bit weird, but it's not a cure for corns when you look at the stars while pouring oil on a door hinge. Uh... So it's all really clear, not really (laughs) next to each other. Someone's just sort of shoved them together. I traced this mashup back to 1906. I so was the Victorians it. and the, the after Victorian issue people, isn't it? It is. It is kind of weird. I mean, Pliny has got a thing about headaches. There's no doubt yeah. about that. His most famous thing is this thing where you put a bra on your head to cure a headache. And there's a wonderful article by Amy Richlin um, 
from 1997, where she just imagines Pliny as this sort of learned Roman sitting in his study with a bra on his head. And it is kind of surreal, but it's also, he says, you should put the rope that a suicide has used around your head to cure a headache. So, you know, the gunge off the door hinge is probably the least weird, to our mind, of all those things. And I suppose door hinge, vinegar, some sort of opening up, releasing thing going on there. I don't it's, know. But it's still bogging I'm going to try much, this. How much nonsense that you find do you find is the Victorians' fault? I don't know. I suspect more of it is actually people now. Oh, really? Who, well, who don't yeah. know their classical stuff and don't really care. It's just like, oh, it's ancient. It's oh, weird. it's a meme. <laughs> There's a lot of meaning going on here. So if you look at memes for Hippocrates, which is what Hippocrates now is is about in some ways, it, you find all the, all the way through various things Hippocrates is supposed to have said, you know, with a picture of him looking sort of learned and whatever. And and then you, you look at the, actually that's nowhere in the Hippocratic corpus. You know, it's also contradictory to some of the things that are in the Hippocratic corpus. But, you know, picture of Hippocrates, let food be thy medicine, you know, nice picture of a vitamin pill, um, loads of fresh fruit. Um, actually, it doesn't say anywhere in the Hippocratic corpus, let food be thy medicine. So, you know, yeah, memes, a lot of memes going on. I'm loving this because we've got another one uh, that I've chosen. So I went for hair loss. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I'm really excited <laughs> what you're going to come out with that because um, it's it is quite a sensitive subject. But what remedies did the various ancients use for it? Well, there is a wonderful remedy in the gynaecological texts for hair loss, um, which is basically that it's hair loss in women. You put cumin, so sort of spicy stuff, or pigeon dung. You know, that's either or, or crushed radishes or crushed onions, or beetroots, or... Nettles. That would be funny, because you'd end up with a pink head. You would end up with a very pink head if you did the beetroot one. So they're or, that's the thing. These are in the gynaecological texts for women as, you could do this one, or that one, or that one. But when modern people have taken hold of this, in terms of, wow, Hippocrates' cure for hair loss, it must be right, it's Hippocrates, they put the whole lot together. So it's like, mix them all together, <laughs> put them on your head. And it's not used in, in modern discussions of this. I don't seem to have realised that actually it was about women. People assume it's male pattern baldness. That's the one that gets people excited because people who write about classical stuff have historically mostly been men and they're the ones who worry about their baldness. So it becomes a big thing that this is Hippocrates' hair loss remedy. And you get some images of Hippocrates because, of course, we've got no idea what he looked like, but people imagine him to look bald. And then, oh, he's bald, you know, he must have lost his hair and he developed this remedy. And then other people today are saying, oh, yeah, but it didn't work. It's the one remedy of Hippocrates that really didn't do the job. So it's sort of used to say Hippocrates is great. Look at this hair loss remedy. Let's all try it now. And they mix all the ingredients together rather than using just one of them. And completely forget it was about women, not men. And then the other line is saying, well, Hippocrates, you know, even he couldn't cause cure hair loss. So you'll find it today sometimes on sites which are offering to cure your male pattern baldness, which are saying cure male pattern baldness. Even Hippocrates couldn't do it, but we can. Do you remember the thing a few years ago about Marmite being a remedy? 
Oh, yeah. Was it a silly yeah. advertising campaign whereby Marmite wanted people who hated Marmite to buy it, so they implied that if you rubbed it on your head? I honestly don't know. It's I can't so remember. Hard, That's disgusting. I would never touch Marmite if you asked me to. I, I pretty much, shut up, Marmite's awesome, but I pretty much think that men will try rubbing anything on their head to get their hair back. I suspect that might be the case, but mm. what would we know? We're only girls. This is true. What is, speaking of ridiculous remedies, and things, what's the most ridiculous mm. cure you've come across, across the board in the ancient medicine? See, this is really difficult because I'm quite tempted to go for one of the dung cures. I mean, that pigeon dung in the hair loss remedy was quite fun. There's a lot of dung. But, you know, on balance, I reckon it's the toothpaste. There is a passage in the Hippocratic Gynecological Texts which talks about bad breath. I've got it here. I'm going to read this to you because I think you need to know. This Please is a bad, bad breath remedy, okay? So here I am sitting with my Lerd Classical Library. If a woman smells badly from her mouth and her gums are dark and painful, incinerate the head of a hare and three mice each one by itself. Remove the intestines from two of the mice, but not their liver and kidneys, and grind them in a mortar of marble or white stone. Sieve, mix together an equal amount of each, and rub this on the patient's teeth. That's disgusting. That okay. is pretty rank. Think about bad breath in the ancient world, or indeed now, if it's so bad that intestines and mouse heads applied to the teeth it makes it better <laughs> i honestly don't How know where that bad from. must your breath be it's on the specificity grind them in a more mortar of marble or white stone why has it got to be white stone is this somehow i don't know is the whiteness supposed to be transmitted to your teeth in some way i just i just don't know where to go really with that or did the person that write it manufacture uh, mortars and pestles no. out of white marble and stone and it was like a sales thing I love it, I love it uh, it claims at the end that's only the stage one, you then have to rinse your mouth out with water and then you have to put greasy wool in honey and rub that in, it goes on for a while it's, and they have to do it frequently and you have to gargle between meals and not eat very much and at the end it says this preparation whitens the teeth, so maybe that is what white pestle and mortar is about, and gives them a pleasant fragrance. Its name is the Indian medication, Indicon Pharmacon. I find that fascinating. Um, yeah, very weird. Very weird. I can see how you must, like all historians do this, you must be the queen of bonkers rabbit holes, where you get dragged down a rabbit hole and to find out one thing that you just can't let go. Yeah, absolutely. And it can take days. And at the end of it, all you have to show is maybe if you're very lucky, a very small footnote. So you've told us a ridiculous one. You've got to have a favourite one. Hmm. Favourite one. I'm afraid it is the fumigation. Um, not because I want to have one done to me, thank you very much, but because I just love its detail. This is another gynae remedy. It's for anything, really, wandering wounds or wounds that get stuck somewhere. Oh, uh, we love all this. Wand <laughs> we love this and we love that women's wounds are cold and therefore need to be constantly injected. Absolutely. With hot yeah. semen. Yeah. Absolutely. And, well, sometimes women's, women's wounds are hot. They're like the only bit in the body that is. They're hot. They're like ovens. But then you've got to keep feeding the oven. So the same, same result, really. <laughs> all of this thought up by men. The, the 
Fumigations, basically, it's the puppy dog fumigation is my favourite. So it's a several-day process, again, where you they have very detailed instructions about how you disembowel these puppies and you <gasps> put them in this chair. <laughs> I know. Listen, sorry, puppy, puppy trigger warning there. I should have given that before. Puppy trigger. Um, and you put that in with various herbs and spices, and then you put the jar in this preheated hole in the ground, which mustn't be too hot, and then you plaster over the top and you pass a reed through it and you pass the reed into the woman and she'll know just where to put it. Well, I know exactly where I'd like to put it. Um, <laughs> and then you fumigate her. And this the fumes going up are supposed to sort of somehow inflate the womb and sort of move it around and make it float back home again. And I love the fact that this goes on for days and that there's so much detail. It's It's a big sort of production number. It's almost like a putting on a play to help the woman feel better or something like that. And the, the best bit is that you can actually stop if you're the patient. If you just say, oops, fine, felt my womb go back again. It's all right. Thank you. We can stop now. Then you're okay. Because there's this lovely thing about female agency in these texts. A woman can say, actually, no, my womb's gone back. It's fine. So there's yeah, a, there's it's been just like, leave me alone now. Yeah, there's an exit clause. I like that. Step away from me with the dead puppies, you weirdos. Exactly. It's a thought, if they were really doing this, and we don't obviously know how many of these remedies are being written down for show, like, cool, I've got a great idea here, and how many are really happening. But the idea that, you know, the back gardens of the ancient world are entirely full of women sitting over holes in the ground with a pot containing a dead puppy, and it's just, just blows your mind, really. It's so unlike you. (laughs) I can't get over the dead puppy thing. Now, Sorry. you know how I felt when I found out that the people of Eep used to chuck cats off the cloth hall? Yep. Oh, yeah. Yep. Anyway, <gasps> what about one that actually works? Well, purges work. You know, if you've got something where they think you've got some stuff stuck inside you that needs to come out, you know, they obviously know what it is that's going to make you vomit or make you run to the toilet. So purges will work. Whether you'll feel any better afterwards and whether it'll cure the actual problem is, is a mystery, but... You know, a purge is a purge, basically. It doesn't take a lot to find out what things, if you eat them, make you throw up. So that's quite good in a sort of, a sort of negative way. Um, also, quite a lot of remedies actually just involve rubbing oil on the affected part. So it's a little bit of soothing massage. I wouldn't say no to that. No. That's purges, and, purges and soothing ointments, they're okay. Okay, I think we should move on to... Um... A bit of menstruation, really. Because, Where every uh, man turns off screaming. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <Later's> guys. guys. <laughs> Sorry, I had to put this in only because Helen has got some really awesome articles about this kind of stuff. So, mm. um, And I really think it deserves to be spoken about because we don't talk about this kind of stuff very often. No. Um, so how did ancient civilizations view menstruation? And are there any misconceptions that we would find completely ridiculous today? Obviously, apart from the wandering womb that, you know, oh, yeah. and the where hot semen. You, where do you want to start, really? <laughs> um, so I did my PhD on ancient theories of menstruation. So there's 80,000 words of it there. Um, yes, and I haven't really looked back because I found this so fascinating. It became clear to me that menstruation is absolutely central to being a woman. There's obviously no idea of ovulation. There's no idea of hormones. So they assume that the blood is coming from what you eat and drink. So during the month, that blood will gradually build up 
Some theories will say it builds up in your womb. Some will say it builds up over your body. And then once a month, it rushes into the womb. But at some point in that month, you've got to get rid of the blood. If you don't get rid of it, it will go somewhere else. So your womb might swivel and pour it out, which is why in the Hippocratic aphorisms, it's said that a nosebleed is a good thing if the menstrual period is suppressed. And then it says... <laughs> the good thing if the menstrual period is suppressed so if anyone says to me oh ancient medicine it's so lovely i really wish we had that now i'm going like vomiting blood is a good thing okay no. <laughs> no. so that's that's really where they are that you have to menstruate after you've got to puberty you have to menstruate every month the only reason you stop eventually is because even women who are wetter than men dry out enough that they don't have enough blood to have to menstruate every month so menopause is sort of explained just drying out but well, that's what that, people say dried up don't they that's they do. still they do. using well, that your skin does get drier you know mm-hmm. you do get saggier all these things are real and they, that's how they interpret it so during the month normally you will be eating and drinking and producing stuff now you can control the amount of blood you produce by not eating blood-producing foods, and that means particularly meat. Meat's a clear blood producer. But the ancient Greeks have a very complex system of what foods produce blood. It's not just this one and nothing else. So some meats produce more or less and so on. It's really quite intricate. It's a very developed system. So you can control your blood production by food and drink and by exercise because they reckon that you know, if you're doing a lot of exercise, like let's talk about in one ancient medical text about girls who are professional singers, so using the, the voice a lot, and that can actually stop you menstruating. So you can control the amount you bleed a bit, but unless you know some sort of weird situation like that, or unless you're pregnant, in which case the blood is going to make the baby and then to feed the baby in the womb. Apart from that, you've got to menstruate every month. I like the concept that some blokes come up with that to try and get women to shut up. If you don't, if you talk too much, it could all go horribly wrong. <laughs> well, the worst bit of all there is this 19th century medicine with the belief that if you're a woman and you use your brain, you you won't have enough blood left for your womb, so you'll become infertile. The stuff um, men have come up with over the years is let's just creep them out even more. Let's punish them by discussing ancient Greek tampons. Okay, okay. <laughs> so there's another another jollity you'll find online quite a lot is the idea that tampons are somehow from the ancient world and that uh, they have sort of sordid descriptions of you know odd things that people might have inserted. I really don't think so. So for the Hippocratic medicine, for ancient Greek medicine, the whole point is to get the blood out. Yeah. And to see it coming out, really, they want a nice heavy period. They believe you should bleed, quote, like a sacrificed animal. Okay. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, that's yeah, that's a beautiful image. There are just men <laughs> screaming worldwide. I love it. Let's go. Let's carry on with this. So, <laughs> image, but it's also quite a powerful image because yeah. sacrifice is what keeps the gods and the humans, you know, in con- in conjunction. It's the conversation method with the gods. It's the sacrifice to them. So actually, to be a sacrifice in your body could be seen by an ancient woman as quite positive. Hey, I'm a sacrifice. This is fun. Although maybe not. Yeah. Uh, so the sacrifice image is, is really huge. But the tamp- so the tampon thing, I really don't see it. The only time you find any texts that, that use words that we then can translate as tampon 
in the ancient world are when they're just talking about a treating a wound. It's not, yeah. about, it's not about a sort of regular thing women do. So I don't get it. I think personally that the method in the ancient world would be what it has been in most cultures, rags, so, you know, bits of cloth that you fold up and use and then wash and reuse. Um, that seems to be much more likely. There are a couple of bits in the ancient Hippocratic texts that talk about seeing what sort of blood a woman produces. Does it have a lot of phlegm or bile in it? Because remember, there are other fluids apart from blood swooshing around in the ancient body. And that suggests that they, they are getting women to menstruate onto something and then looking at the results to see if they think that's okay blood or, you know, a bit phlegmy or bile Mm. So there is that going on as well. So I'm, I'm totally against the idea that, that there are tampons in the ancient world. I see nothing to suggest it other than a bit of mistranslation. But Yeah, it seems possible. like it'd be culturally against what yeah. you're t- telling us about. Yeah, doesn't, doesn't make sense. sense. Doesn't I, make don't, sense. I don't think it'd be very comfortable shoving a load of rags up there anyway. Like, ow. No, absolutely. You'll just, you know, you'll somehow put them in your clothing or tie them around you. Obviously, that's difficult because we don't know enough, really, about you know, ancient underwear other than things like the, the bikini girl image. With And so there's also a leather bikini bottom that's been found in London from Roman Britain. Uh, but those are what you wear to, as an athlete. Um, yeah. Perform as a dancing girl or something. It's not sort of normal wear, but we don't know what they did. Of course, they might not have been stretched that much. That's another possibility in terms of their diet. Um, and just how much blood they did lose on a regular basis. Plus, if they weren't eating and drinking a lot, if they weren't getting the best food, it's perfectly possible they were nowhere near this ideal of every month, you know, massive blood loss. Yeah. That's just the thought of, of men as to what you should do, but actually it wasn't like that at all. So, yeah, lots of unknowns, but interesting unknowns. Mm. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at UH1.com. That's UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so going from menstruation to tampons, the logical way that we're going to hit now is midwifery. Um, So were they always women in the ancient period? Or could they be men? And was there something like an ideal midwife? Well, now, the midwife thing is is another really interesting topic. So midwives traditionally have been women. Um, Women not necessarily who are professional midwives, but just the local woman who's helped with a lot of births. And so 
she's the one you want to come to you when you're in labour. So not really professional midwives as such. But then at the beginning of the Roman Empire, you get this guy called Serranus who writes in Greek, uh, but within the Roman Empire, who writes, writes a book which we know as the gynaecology. And a lot of it is about midwifery. And it's aimed at midwives in some way, whether they're supposed to read it, goodness knows, would that many be literate, or whether they have it read to them, also a possibility. But in the gynaecology, he talks about midwives who can read and write, or at least who know their letters. So he's suggesting a sort of, maybe a group of midwives who are somehow above your normal village wise woman type, you know, or not. And, and again, is this, is this a very specific urban Roman Empire thing? There were some midwives who could maybe make a living from it just because there were enough people in the city that you could make a living, whereas in a village, you know, you can't have it as a job because it's not going to happen. There's also a later Roman description of a barmaid who doubles as a midwife and sort of rushes out of the bar when someone's in labour. So lots of different sorts of female midwife around. But also some of them describe themselves on funerary monuments or are described after their death on funerary monuments as midwife and doctor. So in Greek, maya kaiatros, midwife and healer, which again suggests that their, their job as midwife, when they are being a midwife, extends beyond just giving birth stuff and goes into other health issues. And that would make sense in terms of later European history, where midwives often deal with lots of children's complaints generally, so books about midwifery then aimed at midwives would include children's diseases and deal with things like fertility problems and so on. It's not just giving birth. And as for men in the role, well, it's hard. There's been one argument that in the Hippocratic texts there's no description of normal labour, therefore men can't have been at childbirth. But you could also say, well, they don't describe normal labour because everyone knows about that. They do talk about babies getting stuck and what you do. And men are certainly involved in that from 5th and 4th centuries BC onwards. And if you didn't like the, the fumigations with puppies, I won't even go to how to remove a baby when it's got stuck. But um, No, go on. Yeah. People are going to want to know. You can't float that and then not tell okay. us. Okay, it involves, <laughs> hooks. it involves hooks and nasty, sharp things, basically. Ooh. You know, getting hold of the baby and getting out in bits, which is oh horrendous. Well, I but, suppose, yeah. Well, if the alternative is if it stays there, the woman will die. Yeah. You know, it could be the lesser of two evils, but it's not nice. Um, when I taught that material, I always had to do trigger warnings, and the students mm. were always in shock throughout the lecture, and I tried to play it down, but what can you do? It's like you say, the alternative is yeah. disease yeah. and death, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Infection and death, so. Exactly. Not nice. Um, what did women know at the time about sex and pregnancy? Well, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we don't know, because we haven't got them telling us what they think. But mm. you've got men telling you what they think women think, if that makes sense. <laughs> so you can pretty much gauge that it's the opposite. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's, I remember I said that in Hippocratic gynaecology, women have quite a lot of agency. They can say, no, stop that treatment. My womb is fine now, thank you very much. There's also material like that on on birth and conception and so on. So there's a theory in the ancient Greek texts that if a woman has conceived after a particular act of sex, she'll feel her womb closing. So poop, sort of, poop, it's closed. So she'll know that the seed has stayed inside her 
Mm. Um, which is terribly exciting stuff. So did women actually have a sensation like that, or did men just think they ought to have a sensation like that? Don't know. But Interesting looked, psychology, isn't it? Yeah. And it, that's sort of, oh, I, but people often say, I know when I got pregnant. Even now, don't they? Not because they've had this sensation. Yeah. But they say, oh, I know it was definitely there. Yeah. It's definitely that romantic time and not in an alleyway. It was a good time, yes. I've got to tell you, I'm sitting here and I feel like I'm going through a whole new sex education. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Forget what I know about modern pregnancy and modern sex. I am now having a new lecture on sex education. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> oh, it's only going to get going to get worse. God, I'll let you do the next question, Alina. Oh, I, I know you're excited <laughs> about it. Because you're a fan of this person. I am a fan of this... Well, wait, wait, wait. Fan of this thing or fan of this person? Person. Let's keep it clean. Just making sure. Right, okay. So, did Cleopatra invent the first vibrator? There you see. You've managed to say the words. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) And then the giggling starts, yeah. Sure answer, no. Again, this is a fantastic story, which you'll find all over the internet because it's great. Every day, someone somewhere will tweet, I've just discovered Cleopatra invented the first vibrator. It was filled with bees. And you think, yeah, right. So a good filled with bees buzzing around. Now, A, would you want to risk a good filled with bees anywhere near your bits? No. Correct. No. I guess unanimous, no. B, do you think it would do any good? No. Quite. So it's not exactly a great story, is it? So it, no. builds, on, it builds on a lot of things about Cleopatra and her sex drive. So that goes back to antiquity, the idea that Cleopatra is somehow oversexed, you know, Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. I mean, ridiculous. Um, there are some wonderful stories from the 16th century, um, completely imaginary, and but great, in which Mark Antony actually writes to... Dr. Serranus, um, he's the guy who talks um, in the early Roman Empire about gynecology and about midwives and things. And Mark Antony writes a letter saying, I've got a bit of a problem with Cleopatra. She just can't get enough and she's out there every night doing it with vast numbers of men. What do I do? And Dr. Serranus sends him a special ointment that Mark Antony then puts on his penis. And when he has sex with Cleopatra, it's now so fabulous that she doesn't want anybody else. Hate to break it to you guys, but <laughs> an ointment isn't going to cut it. If you're if you're not <laughs> if you're not entertaining someone, there's no magic thing you can rub on it that's going to change well, that. It works for Cleopatra. Uh, you've either got it or you haven't. I'm afraid. Exactly. Well, oh, so we've just burst the bubble point. of men everywhere, haven't we? But if you thought the hair loss ointment was great, just imagine this extraordinary ointment that makes all women fall in love with you and never want anyone else. I mean, it's, yeah. it's fantastic, isn't it? Does it work both ways? Can I use this ointment for men to fall in love with me? No. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> no, why? No, why, would it, why would it benefit women? <laughs> why would we bother? I have to ask, is there, because we were talking about obviously male pattern baldness being something that men are particularly sensitive to. What about erectile dysfunction? Yeah, well, of course, you do wonder if that's what Mark Antony's problem is supposedly is yeah. in this 16th century exchange of imaginary letters that someone's created between them that actually that was the problem and that uh, once he was capable of doing it properly then Cleopatra wasn't interested in shopping around it's possible 
but it's not a lot they talk about there. Um, they actually talk about the opposite, where you can't stop your erection, which is a real a real medical condition, um, and they're much more worried about that. Anyway, enough erections, probably. Yeah, let's go. We've got one more for you. Mm. Did is it Felinus? Felinus. Yeah. Did he create the first sex manual? Okay, so Felinus. First of all, we don't know if it's a he or a she. Okay. It's a girl's name. Yeah. Possible someone wrote the book under a male person wrote the book under a female name because that's what you often do with pornographic material to make it look like it's written by a woman, but actually it was still a bloke. Yeah, so because it, then it, it enables men to read it and think that women have a vastly different interpretation of what's enjoyable and horny than right. is actually right. true. Exactly. So that's already a problem with the Philinus text. So we've got various writers from the ancient world saying there was someone called Philinus and she wrote a sex manual. And Christian writers got particularly worked up about it. Um, said that, you know, it, she listed all the positions, basically. And as one who says she listed so many positions and they're really complicated, you'd have to have the strength of Heracles to manage them. So you're thinking, hmm, okay, interesting. And then you think of the representations of various positions of sex in on vase paintings and on wall paintings, and you think, okay, so maybe that's something to do with, with Philinus. And then, with sort of great excitement, um, quite late into the 20th century, someone found a fragment which appears to be the first bit of the Philinus text. You know, it'd been lost forever, you know, since the 4th century BC when it's supposed to be written. Usually the Christian writers in the 2nd century AD had seen it, or perhaps they hadn't. Maybe they just heard the rumours and no one actually bothered to look for the text, <laughs> rather like you don't bother with looking for Pliny on headaches. So at some point um, in the late, 19th, late, late 20th century, they found a fragment of papyrus that appears to be the beginning of Philinus. And it's not a list of positions. It's a sort of how to get a girl. <laughs> okay, young man, you know, you want to find a girl. This is how you start, you know, and talk to her nicely. And it's a sort of foreplay manual, if anything. But we don't know what the other volumes were like. So this could be vol one, find a girl, chatter up. And then vol two is interesting things you might like to do together. But the thing it's most like is actually a text we do have, Ovid, on the art of love. So Ovid talks about how to find a girlfriend. So yeah, it's a good idea to go down the circus because if you sit next to her, you can press your leg against her, which is sort of nice. And then you can, Smooth. She wouldn't be expecting that. No, not at all. <laughs> and you can adjust her cushions and fan her if it's hot, and, you know, get more and more close to her. So it's very much more that sort of foreplay, quite fun foreplay stuff. And that seems to be what Polinus' text actually had in it, at least in volume one. So it's a fascinating thing where we hadn't got the text for thousands of years, almost. Um, certainly... It was lost in antiquity and no one saw it till the late 20th century. And then suddenly, oh, here's a bit of it. And it's not what we expect. So it might be the first sex manual or it might just be a much milder book, which got the reputation of being a sex manual because Christian writers were often obsessed with pagans, you know, hypersexed and Christians were not. Um, you know, I can criticise that one as long as you like, but... They, therefore, they bought into this idea that Philinus is all about the rude stuff. Um, when actually, maybe it was about finding a perfectly nice person, marrying them and having a lovely, happy sex life. Wasn't the Kama Sutra the first sex manual? Or am I completely off balance here? I don't know the date for the Kama Sutra, but you are probably right. 
But that's not, it's not a sex manual, is it? That's part of it, but that's the part everyone's interested in. Right. So a similar thing with Philias, really. It's not what you're expecting at all. It's not a list of positions. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. That was absolutely excellent. We loved a little bit of tampons, some menstruating, uh, a bit of sex in there and some fantastic remedies. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's been extremely good fun. And just tell everyone again, uh, latest book or book that most corresponds with this podcast that people can run off and buy enthusiastically now? Well, the thing about Hippocrates now is that it's free. Um, the wonderful Bloomsbury Collections chose to do it as one of their free online books. Oh. So if you go into Bloomsbury Collections and look for Hippocrates now, the whole book is available to anyone, whether or not they've got a university affiliation, absolutely free, online. I think that's fab. That is fab. I'm having heart palpitations as a fellow author that you are getting paid, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Bizarrely, <laughs> oh, okay, so this is very interesting to me. Bizarrely, you still sell copies even though it's free because people read it and they go, oh, that's fun. Need that for the library. So they buy one. Ah, excellent. So everybody shoot over and download that then and then go and buy a hard copy. Excellent. Brilliant. And there's a really, really small book I wrote called Greek and Roman Medicine, mm. uh, which is the sort of book you can read in a in a day. I mean, I went to give a talk once and someone said, yeah, I read the first half before lunch and the second half after lunch. And here I am at four o'clock to hear your talk. So Greek and Roman Medicine, everything you needed to know in one very small book. Outstanding. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Join us tomorrow when we will be cross-podding with the Irish History Podcast to talk about five turning points in Irish history and why they mattered. Don't miss out on that. It's about time we did some decent Irish history instead of just laughing at it with Dorman down the pub. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there, and we have our own channel, and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes, because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time so do go over there and subscribe when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer it streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient which makes you less busy mail checks invoices legal documents and everything you need to keep your business running with stamps.com Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.